I'd like to uh, start off uh, with a well-known Rumi poem that sort of sets the uh, subject matter and uh, also um, establishes a certain tone that I think I'd like to carry through the talk if I can. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense anymore. So tonight's uh, talk <clears throat> is a um, perception, perspective on anatta or selflessness. I call the talk boundary formation. And what has always been helpful for me in, when I've listened to uh, different speakers is to hear their, um, their ideas, their uh, insights into a particular perception of Buddhism. And uh, that has allowed me to not only free from thinking of a Buddhist principle in a certain way, but um, allows a kind of deepening and richness that I loved and still love uh, when I hear a different perspective. So tonight's talk um, is about how we form boundaries to create the sense of me and self and other, this and that, what it, most of us see when we look out from our eyes and uh, the view we hold of the world. So I was listening to a, a NPR um, uh, interview, and they were interviewing us, a person who was uh, an expert on romantic love and had written a book. I always like to tune into those kinds of interviews because they're often uh, rich with insight. And this one certainly was. Um, this was on uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> and uh, he was, this, this author who was being interviewed uh, was saying that uh, the pain you feel when you break up from a romantic relationship is directly proportional to the pleasure you feel when you get together. And he called this the conservation of pleasure and pain. I said, I can, I can, I can, I can hear that. I like that. <clears throat> and if, if you start looking at that, what that means, the conservation of pleasure or pain, it has a, a science uh, bent to it in the sense that uh, in uh, the universe, uh, energy and matter are conserved that the whole universe has a kind of way of coming back to rebalancing itself hmm? in terms of pleasure and pain, in terms of loss or gain, in terms of praise or blame, the eight worldly uh, conditions. But also virtually all energy, that we, when we lean forward, when we lean towards, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction at some point guaranteed of the, of the opposite, in the opposite direction, with the same intensity, in the same degree. It seems like kind of a, a um, common sense understanding. But if we pursued what that meant, we may find ourselves in a field where the soul can lie down 
out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. It is not a minor Dharma point. Now, uh, he went on to say, and I just want to say this for the rounding off of of his interview and his um, wisdom, he said that when you break up, you have to live through the pain in exactly equal proportion as you lived through the pleasure of the formation. Isn't that interesting? Nod your heads. Thank you. <laughs> because what he's saying is that you cannot expose yourself to half of the energy field, half of the principle of conservation, and expect the balancing of the universe to come back into alignment. And he was then went on and talked about various ways to uh, how to address and to hold the pain of that particular breakup and uh, rereading uh, love letters and that sort of thing. And then once, there, once you f- have found the um, completion uh, of, the, of that pain, you've held it, then you throw them away, throw away all the residual matter that would keep you prolonged in that state of complaint. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about how it is that we become unbalanced. You often hear uh, the um, term equanimity thrown uh, out in this tradition. Uh, I, for one, have not used it very often in my teaching because I think it's a misused term. I think people uh, find or believe it to be a, a place they can go where they can be unaffected. And no matter how one explains it to them, people try to crawl out of their pain to be unaffected by it. And so I prefer uh, the explanation of equanimity as understanding something. When you understand something, you're no longer reacting to it. When you're no longer reacting to it, uh, then you are balanced with it. And that's the principle of what is being spoken about by this author. He's saying that when you expose yourself uh, to the rebalancing of the energy, meaning you expose yourself to the pain of the loss, then you come back into balance so that you can then move out without the trace, the residual trace of what you have just been through. So I thought that was a, um, a reasonable explanation of equanimity. But if we lean... If we lean, and um, may I say that this country is in its leaning phase, and this is not a political talk, but I can certainly use it as a point uh, of, of, of demonstration, that when we lean, we create um, the, uh, a, a strong holding on what we want, is, which is what the leaning is about, and a fear in an equal and opposite direction of not having what we want. And if we lean hard enough, that fear turns into terror. And if we lean even harder, that terror turns into evil. All from our own unbalancing leaning. And you will notice from time to time that as we come back into balance, a new portrayal, a new document, 
a new um, surge of the conditions of terrorism begins to rise, meaning that the light goes from green to orange or orange to red or something. And suddenly we're back in fear. And suddenly we're back within the control of that leaning. Because you are most controlled through your terror, as this talk will begin to show. Stay in terror and you will be easily controlled. Now, by studying that leaning, that dark side, we begin to understand how it is that we create the boundaries uh, that is a result of that leaning. But let me say from the beginning that that leaning is only fear. We give power to the opposite, to what we are afraid we will not have. We give power to it through the fear we have of, and the embrace and the clinging to the wanting. So the shadow of imbalance is really from ignorance and fear. So how do we fight the shadow? How do we fight this leaning? If you fight madness, you become mad. That's a principle of dharma. If you fight unconsciousness, you become unconscious. So we cannot fight the leaning, the wanting. We cannot, even though it hurts, and we know we're afraid, we can't fight it with more leaning with more, um, uh, with, with, a, with, with the force of will to try to correct it back. We fight it, as this man said in his interview, through the understanding, through the allowance of it being there, through the non-grasping, uh, through the willingness to feel it completely and let it be what it is. So evil which is the hard leaning, the stressful leaning against something, is corrected not uh, through uh, effort and struggle, but through understanding, through allowance. And then the universe recorrects itself, comes back into stability, comes back in. And we can begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said, resist not evil. What a thing to say. Think of the televangelists and the preachers who tell you to do just the opposite of that. Because when we understand where evil arrives, is derived, how it is derived, you understand that to force or to resist it will create more imbalance. But that understanding, understanding is the way out of this. Understanding. How do we understand something? We have to pay attention to it. We can't understand something that we aren't attentive to. We can only understand something that we have made conscious. So the first thing we have to do is to make something conscious, is to understand it. We can't understand it in abstraction. We have to understand it in its 
experiential form. Knowing that, we break through the superstition surrounding evil. And the morality and the should and the musts just creating more tension. The tension creating more leaning. The leaning creating further resistance and imbalance and further ignorance and on and on it goes. So the study of the shadow, the study of that leaning is the study of how we try to protect ourselves through that leaning. The self and not self boundary. Now a boundary is a conceptual border we established for our safety. Conceptual. If you look in at reality, close your eyes, don't think about something, that's the conceptual border. But if you just experience things, you won't find any boundaries in reality. They are entirely a product of our thinking. But yet, when we look out from our eyes, it seems as if there are boundaries in everything. The first boundary we come to is the boundary between our skin, which we label inside, and the external, outside of that skin, outside. Inside, outside is a boundary formation. Now, I'm not saying that skin is not present, but does it indicate a boundary? Is something outside of my skin substantially different from that which is inside of my skin? Is there an outside and is there an inside? Or is it an artificially imposed border in order to have a protective shield, a wall, that I can then protect myself from and keep the enemy out, which is the purpose of a boundary? The problem is that each boundary needs protection and, by definition, resistance. Now, the second one that I would just like to mention tonight is the boundary we impose inside of the organism itself, once we're inside the skin. And that's the difference between the sense of body and mind. We think, most of us think, that we have a body, but we wouldn't that we are the body. Most of us wouldn't say that. Most of us say that It's not so much me, the body, as it is mine, my body. And that difference between the me of where I reside and the mine of my ownership is a boundary. Now, if you ever look at a newborn child, it does not have the boundary between mind and body. That organism is undifferentiated in its early stage of development. We impose that on 
this organism. And then we take up shop in our heads and claim our identity reference in our mind. And then bemoan the fact that the body ages and changes and gets older and is doing something to me. Now, we, it would be hard enough if we stopped there, but we go even further. Let us look at the boundary we form in the mind itself. So we've got the boundary between the outside world and the organism. We've got the boundary between the organism of the body and the mental, um, which is also an organ, by the way. The mind, the, the brain is an organ. It's like taking up your identity in the smell. I smell, therefore I am. I think, which is another sense door. It doesn't make any more sense than to say, I smell, therefore I am. We've just located our identity within a single organ. Now, within this organ, there are things we like about ourselves and mental states that arise that we um, agree with as part of our image and things that arise which do not agree with part of our image that we would just as soon not have as a part of me. That which correlates with our story, the image of our story, is a thought of as being really who I am. That which is disagreeable and doesn't seem to fit within that image of our story, and it can be either good or bad, those things. The shadow can be uh, equally uh, your sense of goodness as your sense of inadequacy or worthlessness. So wherever we draw the line and say, this is not me, that's where, psychically, we try to bring a wall or a border or a boundary to bear. Now, unfortunately, the mind isn't divisible. But then, really, neither is the mind from the body divisible. And actually, neither is the organism from the environment divisible. But we're creating these concentric circles of further resistance all along the way. What's happening to ourselves? We're getting smaller. We're getting corridored, aren't we? We're getting isolated. We're getting narrowly, more and more narrowly defined. Now, why would I do that? If I'm fearful, I'll draw a boundary line to protect me. And then I'll survey what I have within my castle. And within that castle, if there are further areas that are in disagreement, I'll go and lock myself in the room. And if I look at the room, and there are things in the room, crawling, creepy things of the night, I'll go into my closet and lock myself there. Each time, I think I'm building a greater sense of safety, a greater sense of protection. But in equal and opposite direction, I am raising the fear level. Because I raise the fear level, I think the fear level is being raised on me. I don't see that it's a direct result of me backing in 
from the outside world to my castle, from the castle to my room, from the room to my closet. I don't get the fact that as soon as I move from one enclosement to another, I'm raising the fear level because that is the conservation of energy for this system. We think we're doing just the opposite. We think we're protecting ourselves more. We think we're really taking ourselves in our heart, doing what we need to, when actually the very movement itself is creating the problem. Now, let me go back to the uh, psychic division, the intra-psychic division within myself. That part of me where the image is, doesn't fit my story. What happens to the energy in that system when the sense of inadequacy or unworthiness uh, does not fit my need uh, to be somebody, to be powerful, to be important, or whatever my image might want to be? Well, if it becomes too intolerable, remember, there's, not, I can't, there's nothing I can do to get rid of that energy, so I deny it. I just close myself off and say, this is not me. But that's not good enough. I have to take that energy and I have to place it external to myself so that I can rail at it when I feel it in myself as being some external thing that is happening to me. That's called projection. That's called projection. So projection is being clobbered by our own energy. You see, the thing we loathe is the thing we fear within ourselves. That's why when you get angry, annoyed, frustrated with someone, it's never about the other. Because to make it about the other is to lose yourself in the projection of your own energy. We try to remap our psyche. I call it psychic gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is what the what politicians do to um, have more constituents in their party. They redraw the map of their, of their constituency, of their geography, so that they'll have more people within that map. And they look very funny. It's like, it looks like an amoeba sometimes, uh, political uh, areas. But we do the same thing. We do psychic gerrymandering inside ourselves, looking for areas that we don't want and then projecting them out so that we can keep, keep them safely out there instead of in here. And so when we sit down, like in a, a retreat setting, these energies don't stay out there. They come in here. And much of the tension that you feel in allowing your mind to be what it always has been is the release of the denial that you have been maintaining in your projections in your daily life. 
It's re-owning your own energy. Because when you throw the energy outside yourself in a projected form, you have a symptom related to that projected force. Is it, I don't want this to be too abstract. I know it's abstract. I know that it's, it can be hard. Stick, stay, stay with me here. Stay with me here. Casting out the shadows does not free you from it. It leaves you with a symptom. I then try to hide the symptom as I hid from my shadow. For instance, suppose you feel inadequate. If you have some sense of a belief in yourself about inadequacy, unworthiness. Some sense of devaluation, self-devaluation. You may have a symptom of overcompensating for that feeling. You don't want that to be your self-definition. So you go out and try to be perfect in your actions. So perfectionism can be a symptom of a sense of inadequacy so that your actions don't represent the terror you have of your own feeling of self-fault. Or trying to get people to like you because inside you don't feel likable within yourself. You try to be pleasant or please people at the expense of your own sense of inward balance. You see how these energies force a certain compensation to try to balance themselves when they're not being addressed as and of themselves, for themselves. So the symptom of a problem should lead you or should suggest that there's something going on, some pain that's going on that's not being addressed. This is directly relevant to what we're doing here. Now you can stay with the symptom forever and you can be very mindful of your need to please. And that's not good enough because what is called for here is a relocation of the problem. The pain of inadequacy. And nothing will ever stop the attempt to please until we address that. And you'll never please yourself out of that pain. It is impossible to rebalance the energy using the system, the symptom. You see, we have to be, we have to understand this. This is important. We hate in others what we fear we are in ourselves. The inferiority, the depression, the anxiety. We struggle intuitively with that quality because there's something in us that knows it's a part of us. And the fear of it being part of us is so unacceptable that we'll do anything, even betray our own true nature 
to derive a counterbalance to this energy. So, when we're on to something, when we see that we keep playing out a certain symptom in our life, we want to ask the very important question of where's the pain that's driving this? What's the pain? Let me say that you do not come to anatta, to selflessness, except through the self. You cannot drive around the sense of self and the pain of the self in order to come to a vast opening of nobody. You have to go through the somebody of your pain. And you have to test the belief systems that are being held in place in the assumptions that you are that person of pain. You have to prove to yourself experientially that that is a lie, that it is untrue. And then the pain will dissipate. You can't dissipate that pain through analysis of your historical reasons and justifications of why you have it. That makes it tolerable to be in pain, but it doesn't show you or doesn't alleviate the problem itself. And I can say to you, go to your pain, not because I want you to be tortured, but because I want you to be free. And I know when you look there, it only takes one moment to come and balance those energies called equanimity and to see right through that and to be on your way. Now, the egoic entity, the sense of you, does not want to do this. It wants to be corridored. It wants to be in closed places. Because the more closed places it is in, the more defined it becomes. The more boundaries you force upon yourself, the more obstacles, the more resistance you place to life, the more you're defining your side of the equation energetically, who you are and what you need. Are you ever more defined as a person than when you're afraid? You know exactly what you need in that moment, don't you? And the whole organism is in alignment How about when you're angry, furious? You know yourself. So that's why it's so hard to release, your, to release anger because it gives you such a firm definition. And above, above all else, the egoic sense of you wants that definition, wants to be known. Unfortunately, that which is on the outside of the egoic entity, the boundary on the outside, is equally ferocious and equally known. The more you want to be known, the more the alien, that which is external to what you want 
is also equally defined. And then we have a clash of enemies. And it's you. No, it's you. And everybody is right, self-righteous, because it feels so good to be, but I'm right, you see, and that I am right, you're so well-defined. And of course, you're equally defining what is wrong, which is the other person, so the tension keeps building from your very definition. Meanwhile, the range of us, the range of, of, our, of us, gets smaller, more strangled, more condensed, more embittered, more opinionated, more confined, more concluded, more exclusive. And this is what we call living. In Buddhism, but Buddhism is about eliminating the struggle. Let us not forget that. Buddhism is about eliminating the boundaries, not about being well-defined. And any time we draw a boundary, we're going to create its opposite energetically, the war of polarities. The more I want pleasure, the more I fear pain. And we, not seeing that we are producing the tension in the opposite direction, try to eradicate one of the opposites. So doing, create even more tension and a more defined opposite. To the ego, the loss of boundaries is the loss of identity. It fears that above all else. That's the real reason we don't turn to the pain. Because contained in the pain is the identity of your definition. And to be willing to challenge the identity of the definition to release the boundary is fearful. Because we've held that boundary with such tension, of course it's going to be fearful because that's the opposite energy. Let me read the Gospel of St. Thomas. I just came upon this and I just thought, this is so... The Gospel of St. Thomas is one of the Gospels of Christianity that was not included, obviously, in the Bible. It says this, They said unto him, How shall we then, being children, enter the kingdom? Jesus said, When you make two one, when you make the inner as the outer, and the outer as the inner, and the above as the below, and when you make the male and the female into a single one, then you shall enter the kingdom. Ultimate reality 
is the union of opposites. There are no boundaries in the universe. Freedom is moving through our self-imposed boundaries. No longer depending upon the struggle for our sense of definition. Awakening is awakening to the struggle that's inherent within a definition. There's no exclusions in reality. To exclude anything is to set up a boundary and to have inherent tension and to be defined. If the Dharma holds one truth, it's the truth of inclusivity. Always inclusive. Go where you're not inclusive and see where you have created a boundary of your own projection and own the pain of that projection so that you can move on into the fields beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. Each time we heal, to a particular boundary, you feel a sense of inward spaciousness. Many people, as you practice, most people, as they practice, begin to feel a greater sense of inward ease, often described as being more spacious, more room in there. It's because we're easing the tension within our boundaries. That is the exact same thing the Buddha said about suffering and desire, the need to create the boundary of what in reality is the cause of that suffering. Now we bring a tool that has no boundaries inherent and that is awareness. Awareness by its nature has no boundaries. The means we are applying to the boundaries is in fact the liberating element. And what, in, what actually happens in the course of our training is that we become less identified within our boundary formation and a greater sense of the universality of awareness. Awareness begins to extract itself, said differently, from identification with the boundaries and the organism and the mind and the inward, inside, and the outside. We can arrest awareness at any point 
by looking and using awareness with boundaries. I've got to get out of it. I see this pain. I've got to get out of it. I see the pain, awareness. Now I've got to get around it. I've got to get out of it. Boundary formation. I'm angry, and it's because of him. I'm angry. I aware, there's awareness of the anger, and it's because of him. Boundary formation. I hate my self-dislike. I see it, awareness, and I hate it. Boundary formation. What if we did nothing? What if we just saw, just perceived, What if we didn't add a reaction, a judgment, a resistance? Therein lies the way out. In Dante's hell, his inferno, Over the doorway of the entrance to the inferno, it said, give up all hope of ever escaping. And that was the way out. Think of a method of escape and you've created a new boundary of resistance and further shadow. Give up any sense of escape, but that's not giving up your attention. And the door is wide open. We have to know what we're doing and how to work with the problems that arise in accordance with the teaching and not creating further struggle for ourselves. Let us spend the remaining days together doing just that. And then, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. We'll all meet there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. May we all have some presence within that field. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as we sit, let the awareness be spacious. Let it be untrapped. 
Let the heart sing. Don't worry. Don't resist. There are no problems there. There's only the problem of resistance. Resistance makes the problem. Release the resistance. There are no problems. There are just what is. There's just this. It's that simple. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.